This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. We are just a few weeks away from the beginning of wheat planting. Hopefully, if you're in an area that has gotten some rain, while wheat can be planted in September, it's not suggested except under conditions when paired with cattle grazing. Research has shown that while planting early can give more fall foliage, it doesn't translate to better grain yields. Early planting will tend to have more hessian flies, and in this area, have more aphids that carry the barley yellow dwarf virus, which was a common problem last spring. Also, early planting will tend to have more root rot problems because soil fungus is more active in warmer temperatures. Speaking of soil fungus and aphids, this brings about the discussion of using seed treatments for planted wheat. If buying new wheat from a foundation or company, there's a good chance that it'll be treated. However, many farmers will plant their own held back bin run wheat. Treatments can be added to bin run wheat on the farm in a number of farmer engineered methods, but it's not easy to get good coverage without getting gummy seeds. Often specialized equipment at seed houses work best. Three types of coating can be applied, including fungicide, insecticide, and plate growth regulators. Fungicide seed treatments is especially important to control the smut funguses. Even low levels of smut in the previous harvest can affect large parts of the next crop. This year will have an increased concern from planting bin run wheat due to the problems we had with Fusarium this harvest. Fusarium doesn't carry in the seed, but it can reduce germination rates, even in the seed without a noticeable Fusarium discoloration. Insecticide treatments can help protect the seed in the soil and reduce the risk of aphids and therefore barley yellow dwarf. Germination and stress testing in bin run seed is highly suggested before planting. Just bring a couple of pounds of seed into an extension office and we'll help you fill out the forms and mail it to the Kansas Crop Improvement Association for testing. One important part of deciding to buy new certified seed or plant bin run wheat is if the bin run wheat is even allowed to be planted. While the possibility of replanting seed is much more likely in the world of wheat versus GMO of corn and soybeans, there are still certifications, registrations, and rules to deal with. In a very general sense, there are three levels of seed protectionism. The highest level is where grain from last harvest is not allowed to be replanted, even by the farmer that grew the crop. This is similar to most corn and soybean seeds. The second level is where the original seed must be purchased from a certified seed dealer, but then the preceding crop can be replanted by that farmer for a certain period of time, usually about three plantings. At this level, the crop cannot be sold for seed unless the farmer has been licensed for seed certification. At the lowest level, a certification is none at all. The seed has no genetics that anyone owns, and sometimes the seed has mixed genetics with no names. This can be planted and replanted as many times as wanted. In truth, the question of whether the rules when it comes to replanting seed is complicated, and it depends on the company of who created the variety. If you have any questions about seed treatments or seed planting legalities, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. With any recipe, it takes the right blend of ingredients to make the perfect batch. But if something's missing, then the nutritional value changes. K-State experts offer advice on how to provide nutrition when pastures are missing a key ingredient, rain. On September 26th, there will be a drought discussions meeting for all livestock producers at the Cherryvale Community Center at 6 p.m. It makes sense that when pastures don't receive adequate rain, 
The grass isn't able to meet nutritional needs without supplementation. Producers will likely need to start feeding hay earlier than usual. Now is possibly a good time to use that hay that's been sitting for a few years. While older hay does not hold the same nutritional value as new crop forage, because microbes and weather break down the carbohydrates, proteins, and vitamins, but the value resides in saving the current season's hay for use further into the winter feeding season. To account for the declined quality and to provide a balanced ration, testing the hay is important. Limiting the amount of time livestock have access to hay each day is another management strategy, preventing waste. Referring to bovine, by allowing cows access to hay only six to eight hours a day, they'll get the same amount of nutrition as they would with free choice access. By moving them out of the lot, cattle will waste less because they aren't tossing it around. Another strategy is grazing crop residues. Crop residues can be a great feed source, but the greatest nutritional value is on the first day the livestock are turned out. The quality decreases with time passing quickly. Grazers will eat the leaves and grain on the ground first and then the stalks, which have less nutritional value. Adequate fencing and water are other considerations and could be additional costs. As previously mentioned, there will be a drought discussions meeting for all livestock producers at the Cherryville Community Center on September 26th. This is a responsive meeting due to forage shortage, continued drought, and high feed costs. If adjustments after calling and early weaning are called for, this is a great opportunity to explore options with livestock experts. Meeting topics will include using unique feedstuffs, projecting forage inventory needs, avoiding nitrate and prussic acid poisoning, and considerations for feeding livestock with limited forages. To reserve your spot and a dinner plate at the drought discussion event, please call the Montgomery County Extension Office, 620-331-2690. The meal is sponsored by Community National Bank and Trust of Cherryville and Commercial State Bank of Coffeyville. For more information about livestock production or forages in Southeast Kansas, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Crows are native birds in Kansas, having lived here for hundreds of years. The common crow is one of America's best-known birds. Their large body size of 17 to 21 inches long with completely coal black feathers and the familiar caw-caw voice makes them an easy bird to identify. No other birds should be confused with the crow with one exception. In the western one-fourth of Kansas, a summer and winter resident, the white-necked raven can be found. Sometimes crows and ravens intermingle in winter flocks. The raven, even though, as the name implies, white-necked, does not have a white neck visible to a person watching the birds. 
Ravens can be distinguished from crows by their larger size, call, wedge-shaped tail, and flight pattern, which commonly includes soaring or gliding. Crows have a frequent steady wing beat with little or no gliding. Crows pair off in early spring, about February to May, building nests of twigs and coarse stems and lining them with feathers, grass, cloth, strings, etc. These nests are usually 18 to 60 feet above the ground in trees. Where there are not many trees, crows may nest on the ground or on poles. The average clutch is four to six eggs, which hatch in 18 days. Usually there is only one brood a year, but there may be two. Both the male and female share incubating the eggs and caring for the young. The young leave the nest at about five weeks of age and forage with their parents throughout the summer. Later in the fall, families join together either to migrate or to overwinter large flocks that sometimes exceed one million crows. Few wild crows live more than four to six years, although some have lived 14 years in the wild and some over 20 years in captivity. One important aspect of crow behavior is their congregation into huge flocks in fall and winter. In Kansas, most crow problems occur because of roosting, which generally starts in mid-October and lasts until mid-February or late March, depending on the breakup of winter-like weather. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. People love their pets, and people love their plants, but what happens when your plants can hurt your pets? You need to carefully consider if your pet has any bad garden habits like chewing on plants or digging before selecting plants for your landscape. Plants that remain at ground level are especially risky if your pet is a selective vegetarian. Each plant will affect dogs and cats differently. Here are some of the more common plants in our area that dogs and cats will need to stay away from according to the ASPCA. Azaleas and rhododendrons boxwoods, buckeyes, burning bushes, any bulbs like daffodils and tulips, English ivy, any member of the allium genus like onions, chives, garlic, and leeks, hollies, hydrangeas, lantana, surprise lilies, yews, and yucca. Some of these plants will produce more severe symptoms than others, but the most toxic plant on this list is the yew. It does not take very much of the plant to be fatal, so take extra care when supervising animals around yews. Some plants will only affect cats, but not dogs. These include daylilies and true lilies. Common plants in our area that are safe for both dogs and cats include crepe myrtles, bachelor's buttons, bamboo, celosia, coral bells, and zinnias. If your pet is showing symptoms of poisoning, or if your animal ate a plant that you're unsure how it will affect them, you can call the ASPCA Animal Poison Control Center at 888-426-4435 for more information on how to help your pet. If you're unsure about the identity of a plant your pet has eaten part of, contact your local extension office. 
The act of designing gardens with pets in mind is colloquially known as petscaping. Here are a few principles of petscaping that will allow your pets to enjoy your yard. First, look up any plants you have to determine their animal toxicity and select any new plants based on their safety for dogs and cats. Plants with thorns are also not recommended as any downed branches can pierce your pet's feet and low-hanging branches can cause problem with eyes if accidentally run into. Mulch is a very beneficial part of every landscape, but make sure that the mulch is natural wood with no dyes. While these dyes cannot kill your pet, your pet might still be sensitive to them. Many garden chemicals will have what is known as a re-entry interval, or REI, where entry is restricted after spraying to allow for the chemical concentration to drop. Always read the label of any ag chemical before applying it to a place where people or animals will frequent. The label will also have information on how the chemical might affect pets. When possible, opt for non-chemical control options to maximize the safety of your pets. Pull weeds instead of spraying, spray bugs off of your plants with a stream of water instead of chemicals, and fertilize using organic options. If you have a compost bin in your backyard, make sure your pet cannot get into any food scraps you compost. Providing shade and water will help your animals stay cool and hydrated during the hot summer months. Lastly, use pathways to train your pet where they should be walking by allowing them to follow you on these paths. With some careful training and plant selection on your part, you can ensure that your pets stay healthy and can enjoy your landscapes as much as you do. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.